Let's now turn our attention to the Word of the Lord. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is our text for the sermon titled, Amazing Mercy. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The story is told by Hosea, a prophet that prophesied in Israel, the northern kingdom, toward the very end of the existence of that kingdom in the 8th century B.C. God called Hosea to a special ministry. Not only was he to preach to the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, but he was also to do so using his own life. The Lord took the life of Hosea and ordered and instructed him what to do and how to do it. And it was by his life that he laid the foundation to preach to the nation. Now that's a good application right there. A preacher preaches out of his life. If he has not walked the walk, he should not talk the talk. And that's the way Hosea was. He has been walking the walk. And what happened to Hosea? Well, you remember the story, I'm sure, quite well. For one thing, the Lord ordered him to marry a prostitute, a fallen woman, a woman of harlotry. What a horrible thing. That violated every instinct in a godly man's body is to marry someone like that. But God wanted to show his mercy to Israel. So he ordered Hosea to marry a prostitute. Not only that, she bore him three children. And some have even questioned whether they were really his children or not, as you might suspect. But regardless, they each were given names. The first one was named Jezreel, it was a boy. Later on, a little baby girl. Oh, now, what a sweet and tender name you could give to a baby girl. But no, the Lord said, name her Lo Ruhamah. No mercy. Why don't you name little girls faith and hope and charity? No mercy was to be her name. All her life, she was to bear the name, no mercy. Then a third child, another little boy, came to the family. And the Lord assigned his name, Lo-Ami, not 
my people. Isn't it every instinct of a father and a mother to say, this is my baby boy. But he bore the name, not my people, not my people. And it was to work itself out the way the Lord had ordered the prophet to prophesy by way of the names of his children. And that is the passage that is referenced by the text we just read out of 1 Peter. Peter quotes this passage. He says, once you were not a people, and now you are a people. Once you had no mercy, but now you have received mercy, amazing mercy. Bear with me for a moment, if you would, that we go back to that 8th century BC scene of the household of Hosea and see what the Lord was talking about. First of all, let me just read the text. It'll be easier than trying to tell the story and it'll be exactly from the word of the Lord. This is virtually the entirety of the introductory chapter of the prophecy of Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer and she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel for in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What, is all, what does that mean? <laughs> Quickly, show of hands. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it means. Jezreel was one of the most important places in ancient Israel. It was a town about 55 miles north of Jerusalem in the northern kingdom. And it was a place that had very significant events in the life of ancient Israel. For one thing, it was an oasis town. It was a beautiful town. It was a town of respite. It was a town of rest. It was a town of restoration. One of the great kings of Israel came back from a battle and was nursed back to health in Jezreel. On one occasion, a king was sick. He went there. It was a, it was a, a town of restoration. It was a town of renewal. And it was a town that had incredibly number of attendees of the kings. It was never really the capital. Samaria was always the capital of the northern kingdom for all practical purpose. But Jezreel was that wholesome place where there was restoration. There was a bomb in Gilead, but there was a fountain in Jezreel. That was the place God's people would go for restoration and renewal. But it also turned out to be one of the vilest most sinful cities in the land. And this is how it got to be that. If you remember your history, there was a dividing of the kingdom and finally various dynasties ruled in the north. Only one dynasty ever ruled in the south and that was the dynasty of David and Solomon and Rehoboam and the kings that descended from them. But in the northern kingdom, there were numerous kings that would be deposed by assassination and by various palace intrigue. And then there would be a new dynasty, some of them lasting only just a short time, days even, months even, years, short dynasties. There was the house of Omri. Omri was a powerful king and probably had one of the most powerful reigns of any nation. He would go to war successfully against the great uh, opponents of Israel back in those days. Uh, opponents of Israel back in those days, did I say? Syria, Egypt, <laughs> Tyre and Sidon, Lebanon, 
maybe continued to be in some sense even today. But Omri was a wicked king and he brought a wickedness to Israel that they had never seen before. And he did all he could do to turn Israel's heart away from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the God of David. And they began to sin greatly during the days of King Omri. But it wasn't King Omri that brought it to its apex. It was his son Ahab. As the great preacher said, the vilest toad that ever squatted on the throne of Israel. Ahab. And Ahab wasn't so bad as his wife. The most wicked woman in biblical history, Jezebel. She was the daughter of the king priest of Tyre and Sidon, the seacoast towns that were known for their idolatry and their wickedness. And she had on her personal staff, Jezebel on her personal staff had 450 prophets. That's job security for the ministry right there. 450 prophets on her personal staff of the, of the god Baal or Baal as we know him. He was the fertility god. It was the god that was represented by the bull. And it was the ancient Canaanite and Amorite god. It was the god that was, that was pictured with Aaron when he made the golden calf. It was a representation of this great God of fertility. And he took over the culture of that land. Not only that, she had 400 priests to the goddess, the star goddess, Astaroth, from which we get Easter. 850 prophets on her personal staff that went throughout the land and corrupted the land. Not only that, she was inherently wicked in every way, a vile and a corrupt and a profane woman. And she caused Ahab to go far beyond what his father Omri had done and far beyond what any other wicked king of Israel had ever done. And it was during those days that certain things happened. One time after another, God's people would be defeated in battle because of the vileness and the wickedness of this king and queen. Time after time, God's own prophets would be in jeopardy because of the wickedness of this vile king and queen. And over and over and over, the blessings of God were removed from the northern kingdom. Over and over and over, this town of Jezreel began to disintegrate in its morality, it began to go become more and more corrupt. And God began to turn his back more and more upon the northern kingdom. And as the years went by, the northern kingdom forgot the covenant that God had made. The covenant that God made with his people was that there was a, was a divine covenant between God, the king, and his people. But Jezebel brought to the kingdom the notion that the queen and the king were absolute authorities, that there was no law above the law. There was no crown above their crown. There was no king above them. There was no God in heaven. There was no true God. That's why on one occasion, in order to restore what little bit of faith they could in the land, the prophet Elijah had to go to Mount Carmel and challenge these prophets in the great event there when sacrifice came and God showed himself powerful one more time by fire from heaven. 
But the idea was there that this king and queen together were absolute, unchecked, unfettered monarchs. No one could tell them what they could and could not do. One of the most precious things in ancient Israel was the right of personal property. God had given to His people the land. And He had allotted the land by tribes. Jezreel just happened to be in the land allotted to Issachar, the son of Jacob. God had allotted the land by tribes, and then He had allotted the portions by clans and by families. And you can read about this in the book of, of uh, Joshua, how so important it was that it all be divided and each person got the portion of the land that was coming to them by divine lot and by divine arrangement. And this personal property that they had was theirs. It was to where they were to have their vineyards and to have their crops and to raise their families and to, and to have prosperity in the land and to participate of the prosperity in the milk and the honey. But that didn't stop Ahab and Jezebel from going out and by complete fiat confiscating this private property and pulling it into the king. Remember the story of Naboth's vineyard? That happened in Jezreel. What am I saying? I'm saying that God watched as a people that were once a people, a godly people, a good people. Joshua lived in that section. Ephraim, Manasseh, Dan, Asher, Issachar. The northern kingdom was the most powerful and the most prosperous, much, much stronger in many ways, much more natural resources, much more geography, many more powerful tribes than the weaker southern kingdom. But as time went by, God had to reject, turn His back on, set aside in His righteousness the wicked kingdom of Israel. Now, God didn't do this in the southern kingdom at the same time. When Hezekiah was on the throne in the southern kingdom, God spared the destruction. But he had prophesied in this passage that he was going to put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, that he would break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. That was the summary prophecy of where the doom of this nation was headed. I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Just as a side note, let me say that in His wrath, the Lord remembers mercy. And He said to the southern kingdom, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, His servant, since the Lord had promised him a lamp to him and to his sons forever. David had received the promise of the, what did it say there? The lamp. Who's the lamp? It's the light of the world. In our text in Peter, it talks about God has called us from darkness to the lamp. The lamp of Judah. The light of the world. We've been called to Christ. We've received a special call. 
Well, you can see how the names of the other two children follow quite easily. God said to the little girl, no mercy. God was not going to have mercy upon Israel, and he didn't. They were destroyed by the Assyrians in the late 8th century. Right at the very end of the prophecy and ministry of Hosea, God destroyed them as a nation. And to the little boy, not my people, not my people. I will no longer claim you to be my own. Remember the covenant over and over. It said, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the promise. And now the Lord is saying, you're not my people. If the preacher has anything to say to us, he would say to us, God in his justice and in his judgment will not tolerate sin. It will surely be punished. It was God's determination to punish sin that sent Christ to the cross. God was not going to let sin slide. God was not going to let sin reign. He was going to deal with sin and put an end to sin. And the only way to deal with sin is to atone for it, to cover it, to eradicate it, to render it null and void. And that's what Christ did on the cross. And he used the technical term, it is finished. Rendered null and void. That's what God did to sin. But listen to the story in Hosea. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said, Call her name, No Mercy, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or the sword or by the war or by horses or by horsemen, but I will save them by my mercy. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord called his, said, call his name, not my people, lo Ami or Ami, for they are not my people and I am not your God. That's not the end of the chapter. That's not even the end of the verse, I mean, to, of, of the paragraph. Listen now. With all this darkness, all this negativity, all this judgment, all this punishment, all this wrath, all of this rejection, all of this statement of no mercy, you're not my people that God declares upon sinners, vile sinners, upon a nation that had gone into absolute corruption politically, morally, spiritually. God says to this people, and hear the words of the prophet Hosea as he continues on speaking the word of the Lord. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea which cannot be measured or numbered. In their place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. You're going to be one day by God's mercy restored. You're going to be, as Peter has just said, you're going to be a chosen race, a holy nation, a peculiar, which means a special people. The Lord in His wrath remembers mercy.
By the way, I'm quoting the book of Habakkuk. I think most of you know that. The prayer of Habakkuk was, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. And that's what the Lord does. That's who he is. That's how he operates. And listen to the passage as it continues here in Hosea chapter 1. He says, where in the place where it was said, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are children of the living God. Now hear the promise of the gospel. And the children of Judah, it's the southern kingdom, and the children of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, the destroyed kingdom, the kingdom that received the full brunt of the wrath of God, the full complement of all of the curses that God had said would befall an unrighteous nation in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. Judah was the remnant and was spared for a while. Eventually the Babylonians conquered them and the Lord brought them all to the same place. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. The regathering of Israel, the bringing back of God's people, the bringing together of those ancient peoples, but based upon a far more glorious and full covenant which God had made, a new covenant wherein he had called Jews and Gentiles and all unto himself. And notice the rest of the verse. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head, Christ. This is a prophecy of Christ and his headship over the true Israel, Jew and Gentile, the gathered people of God. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God's restoring it. He's bringing back the city of fountains, the city of rest, the city of respite, the city of restoration, the grand and glorious oasis and haven that was Jezreel in that ancient day. It was great again, and it is so in the one head, and that is Jesus Christ. In Him and in Him alone is there this locus and focus of mercy. In Christ, the lamp of Judah, the head of the church, is there found mercy. Amazing mercy. Mercy. 